I just wanted to record a quick introduction to this episode. Um, firstly, I need to apologise for how long it's been since we put out an episode. Uh, this is partly um, down to kind of conflicting work schedules and some issues that we've had with this episode in particular. Now, we recorded this episode on the birth of the nation with John Jansen from the Hollywood Gauntlet, who, by the way, we didn't actually introduce properly uh, during the episode. So I'm going to kind of do that now. And John kindly came back to talk about birth of the nation with us. You might recall we had him on for an episode on Stanley Kubrick's fear and desire and when I came to edit this episode what I noticed was that Joachim's part of the recording was actually significantly shorter than John and I's and after much investigation it was discovered there was a slight recording issue in that it sounds like when Joachim's speaking um, that there's kind of audio dropouts and unfortunately we didn't have backup recordings of his side of them so what we've what I've had to do is basically um, try and work out where Joachim was trying to speak and what he was trying to say and kind of fit them into the conversation. It's taken a lot of editing. This wasn't helped by the fact that I got about halfway through this episode and then due to a computer disaster completely lost all the editing I had done and to say it was um, slightly depressing would be an understatement. However, what I've managed to produce now I think is completely coherent. Sometimes when Joachim's speaking it will sound like he's cutting out and I I, I think you can you'll be able to to kind of judging on the kind of the way me and John answer him or kind of respond to him I think you'll understand what it was he was saying. I've also with this episode and um, whilst we were talking with John we kind of towards the end we just started kind of talking about things like podcasting in general and some films that John had made when he was working at Sega and what I've done I've, I've kind of done two parts to this podcast so you'll have the first part which is our discussion on birth the nation and we go on several tangents and we talk about the uh, the the impact of birth of a nation on, and how it's kind of and the direction that cinema is going in at the moment but if you carry on listening to the end we, we kind of sign off and then the podcast will come back and I've included the section where we were talking about um, just our kind of thoughts on podcasting and, and John's work at Sega I will put a link as well to the film he made that he's talking about so it must just be a kind of little fun thing that yeah, you might be interested in uh, listening to so without any further ado I'm going to um shut up and let you get on with this episode of Birth of a Nation. Uh, there's a lot more to come for us. We have several episodes in the bag, which um, straight after this is finished, I will get on editing. So many thanks for being patient. And I give you the Master Cinema cast with John Jansen talking about Birth of a Nation. Are they in there? Smoke? Oh, thank you. So I can see better. Is that D.W. Griffith? Yes. Where'd you find that thing? It lights. He looks all right, doesn't he? Sure, he's all right. He made the birth of a nation. Oh, that other man's Walter Houston. I wish we could hear better. I saw him in a picture once, and he's pretty good. Come on, we will hear better. Is it generally known that you're a southerner? <laughs> I should think it should be. It's been advertised enough. Yes, my father was a colonel in the Confederacy. Have you got a penny? Penny? What do you want with a penny? I'm going to give you a present. It's a sharp gift. Let's see. I'll have to look. 
No, I'm rich. I've only got a dime. A couple of them. I'll take both of them. Say, you don't... Say, you don't care what you do with my money, do you? How do I know your present's worth the two dimes? Well, I think you'll like it. It's an old army saber, worn by a Confederate officer. Well, thank you, Walter. I like that. My father. Wore a sword like that. Now I want to ask you a question. Far ahead. When you made the birth of a nation, did you tell your father's story? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, after you mention it, perhaps I did. How long did it take you? Say, so you ask more questions. How long does it take to make anything? I suppose, oh, I suppose it began when I was a child. I used to get under the table and listen to my father and his friends talk about the battles they'd been through and their struggles. And those things impressed you deeply. And I suppose that got into the birth. You, uh, you feel as though it were true? Yes, I feel so. True is that blade. Oh, that's natural enough, you know, and you've heard your father tell about fighting day after day, night after night, and having nothing to eat but parched corn, and about your mother staying up night after night sewing robes for the clan. The clan at that time was needed and served a purpose. Yes, I think it's true. But as Pontius Pilate said, truth, What is the truth? Well, it has stood the test of time. Still considered to be the best picture that was ever made. Thank Let's you. make you feel proud. Sir, thank you very much for that. If I thought you really thought it was the best picture ever made, I would be tempted to be a little proud. But I don't know. You never get into those things, you know. You never get into those things, the... Things that you expect to get more to get. But it 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 had the fury of life in it. I mean, it, it made your blood oh, it made your blood tingle. Well, maybe there was something in it, but I don't think it I deserve the credit. It was about something. You can tell easily a story about something. It was about a tremendous struggle. It's about a story of people that were fighting desperately against great odds. Great sacrifices, suffering, death. It was a great struggle, a great story. A story where young girls used to wear cotton or ermine and where the boys imagined. Did you ever read about uh, Pickett's Charge in Gettysburg? Mm. Beautiful thing. There were boys there, like in many a battle. When the fathers dropped their guns, these nothing but children picked them up and went on fighting. And they fought to the bitter end. Mm. It's easy enough to tell that kind of a story. All you have to do is anybody can do that. It's the story itself that tells itself. This is the Master of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name's Tom. 
And today we have with us John. Thanks for joining us again, John. Ah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Great. Um, today we will be talking about the birth of a nation, the infamous film from uh, the early 1900s. Background information first to get that out of the way. Um, this was a screenplay which was adapted from Thomas Dixon Jr.'s stage play, The Clan Trilogy. And you told me off mic, John, that you've been reading some stuff about Dixon before this recording. Yeah, he had quite an interesting life. I mean, it's this is one of those subjects that's tough with Birth of a Nation when you sort of tackle it because it's it is going you know the the subject matter is going to be offensive to some people in in one way or the other. I think it's good to kind of take a historical perspective on it. You have to kind of look at it like you're in 1915 or at least the the age and era that it was made in and the times it was made in and how it was made. And I mean, I think we can kind of take an objective look at it um, and sort of sort of peel back the layers. And then doing that, learning about Dixon just surprised me because there's so many roads that lead to him writing that particular book, The Klansman, and there's so many things that could have happened that would have led him not to writing it. And when I see those kind of things in a background, it always fascinates me. I mean, he grew up as a farmer you know, in, in that Reconstruction South. So his personal story is not going to be like people in other states. He experienced something that was going to be personal to his particular region. But he was very smart, and it, he was ready for college by the age of 15 and got accepted, and he meets Woodrow Wilson at John Hopkins. I mean, think about that, the chances of running into a future president of the United States. Um, and it's Woodrow Wilson who influences Dixon to get into theater. And so he goes into theater and he sort of gets bit by the theater bug and ends up going to New York and decides he wants to go full and all in into drama. He invests $300 of his own money into a production of Richard III where the manager ends up stealing all the money and running away. But think about $300 in that time period. This is 1884. That's still a lot of money. It's a lot of money today just to, to flush away. So Dixon has a failed sort of uh, career in the theater gives it all up, goes back home, enters law school. North Carolina, Greensboro, ends up running later for the state legislature, runs for the House. He's not even 21 years old yet. Decides that politics isn't for him, gets his law degree in practice, and he ends up practicing the law for a while. He even prosecuted a man for burning a mill and had to change a heart, and then later led a campaign to go for that man's release. All this time, he then moves into the ministry. <laughs> so when you look at all the particular jobs, he's a minister then in North Carolina, Raleigh and Boston and New York, and then he has health problems and he goes back to Virginia. And it's because of these health problems, he resigns the ministry and he decides that he would write after seeing Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. He was so influenced, incised, however you want to look at it, angered by seeing that particular stage play, he was sort of resolved to tell what he said, quote, was the true story of the white Southerners. So this is an actor, lawyer, politician, minister, and lecturer who now decides he's going to write a novel. And, you know, he writes a thousand pages and ends up becoming the Leopard Spots. And, you know, later on the sequel would be The Klansman. But the success of the novel, he wanted to write something that would sort of either t stand alongside Uncle Tom's Cabin, or even replace it. And what's so interesting was is he actually did that. He created a book that was uh, an absolute sensation. 
And it eventually sold enough copies to where it made him very successful. Um, and he was able to, you know, go back and write some other books. Interestingly enough, he lost all his money in the 1907 sort of stock panic. So this is a man that even before we even get up to his meeting with Griffith has had many different lives that most people, you know, probably at that time, uh, either one of those would have been, you know, a complete life. So it's fascinating. It's such a personal story for him of when you when you get directly into the, the Klansman part of the story. Because when you talk about Griffith and Birth of a Nation, it's two films. There's a part one and a part two. Part two owes everything to the Klansman. But Griffith's part one has nothing to do with the Klansman. The first hour and a half has nothing to do with the play of the Klansman or really the book. Um, the novel, I think, begins in the final days of the Civil War, and the play begins at the South Carolina elections of 1867. So basically, it's Griffith's prequel is what sort of he brought to his adaptation of The Klansman. And that's what I find really interesting, because when I want to talk about this film, there's really two films to talk about, the, the first hour and a half film, and then the second film that comes after that, that I think is, is far more incendiary, and I think is the result of much of the controversy of this film, because I, I would challenge if it had just been the first hour and a half, which still would have been a stunning event in 1915, wouldn't that have been enough? Tom, what was your kind of like first? I think it came almost through hearing about it via reputation. And I think I, I when I first got into films, I mean, seriously got into films and not just kind of re-watching Star Wars every other weekend. I think there was a point where we had heard about Birth of a Nation through kind of various textbooks. And when I started to do my A-levels, um, our teacher came to us and was like, we were doing silent cinema and we kind of got to a Birth of a Nation. And I remember they wouldn't show it at the time, which as soon as you kind of add that... Um, I suppose the censors come down and say you know, we're not going to show it because it's almost it's too controversial. It instantly made it slightly more appealing to go and source it out, and it was actually played on the BBC around about 1997, I seem to think it was. And I watched it, and I was a massive fan at that stage of epic cinema, and I went into it very naively, just from a purely cinematic point of view i didn't really take into account the, the the rather the ugly side of the film and i remember being quite kind of blown away by it in from a technical point of view when i went to university we went back to it again where we, we watched and i oddly enough i went back and i watched a lot of um kino put a box set out and it was, it's called, I think it's called when, when Cinema Began or something like that. And it's just basically a load of films ranging you know, from train arriving at a station and just kind of various kind of one real efforts, really. And I went back and I watched a load of those. And I remember seeing those at university and being kind of coming into Birth of the Nation from having watched all of those and seeing it again at university. It was it was revelatory to me. I think in some respects, um, just seeing the level of technical proficiency to it. 
Um, over the years, I've not really, I've not gone back to it that much. I have to be brutally honest with you, but in kind of preparation for this, like I went back and I did all those kind of one realism and I went back to the film. And I think Birth of a Nation is an interesting film because if it was less competently made than it is, we wouldn't talk about it as much. If it was made 10 years after, in 1925, say, we wouldn't talk about it as much. We'd probably deride it a lot more because of the fact of the overt racism. But it falls into a very strange kind of time period where you have to acknowledge its brilliance. I think that's the the, the thing I, I always take out of watching Birth of Nation. You have to acknowledge the technical proficiency and the fact that you really get the... I suppose the bedrock of modern Hollywood cinema in it. Um, you know, I, I would go so far to say something like James Cameron's Titanic. The the blueprint of those types of films is in the Birth of a Nation. There's no getting away from that. Um, it, you have to take a step back from it and watch it. And I think it's, it falls into an awkward. It falls into a very awkward category for me. I know it's on my Letterbox review. I obligatory give it one out of five, which is purely for. The, 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 co the context of the film but there's no denying I think the birth of a nation from a purely cinematic point of view I think it's an achievement it's an incredible film there is no getting away from that I mean what, what what's your kind of take on it uh, it's a difficult film for me as you've been talking about um, the first time I saw I walked out after about 45 minutes uh, because I, I just uh, I, I don't think I was ready for it Basically, I don't think I technical proficiency um, and I think me at 20 years old, um, I was looking for a different sort of uh, film of cinema. I sat down. I think that was about when did it come out, like four years ago or something. Um, yeah. So what the the fuss was about, so to say, uh, I completely fell in love with the technical aspects, just how he uses motifs all the way through the movie, um, everything that it has been praised for, uh, but it also left this end of the spectrum, which I gave it a two and a half star because basically it's a five star technical film and a zero star in story-wise. So it's an epic, it's a masterpiece, it's a piece of racist filth, it's propaganda. It's groundbreaking, it's important, it's influential, it's long, it's prov It's difficult to know where to start the discussion, really. It is interesting because it's not a film that, as a film goer, I would have ever sought out and that kind of thing. I had to be in a history of cinema class to, to get introduced to it, and that's how I was introduced to it. And I was about 18 years old at the time, but for me... I'd already been making films for about four years on Super 8 film, sort of cutting my teeth with scissors and splice tape. And I mean, I couldn't even do a dissolve necessarily in the Super 8 age. I mean, I was very limited in my film grammar. And just by making a film here, I thought I naively was a filmmaker and I knew what I was doing. And I think what really knocked me out about seeing a silent film like this, and I was not exposed to many of them at that age at all, was how blown away by it I was in terms of how it stole, told its storytelling through its images. 
and through its pictures and did it very well. I thought the way it set up the dramatic conflicts between both families in the North and South and setting up the sons and the daughters and the and sort of the connections that would run in between those, even down to the little photograph that goes itself into the battlefield. I mean, in a funny way, it was like seeing the origin of cliches. Um, all, all sort of like laid out right here. And I just, I sort of marveled at how well sort of I was able to follow the story. It should have been, it could have been very complicated, but it wasn't. It, and, and the way the cross-cutting worked, the irises really impressed me, um, focusing in on the little things. Um, and I mean, I know, you know, and of course it forced me to read more about Griffith. And the film that really did it for me was Intolerance, the film he did after this. That's the film that I think just really you know, really, uh, really surprised me just in, 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 in its bold and audacity of taking the four stories and cross-cutting between doing all of that at that time. So again, this was sort of my early exposure to this type of, of silent cinema. But what impressed me about Griffith was his, his abilities as a director, dramatics, a technician versus a director, coming from theater, knowing how to work with actors. I mean, apparently he rehearsed this for six months. He would hone scenes down and let actors try them in all different kinds of ways until he could just sort of take out and hone it to the pieces he wanted. And then Billy Bitzer, his cinematographer, would come out with a pad and a watch and they would time the final scenes so they would know exactly what they're going to do and the costume and the production designers. Everybody was there on the rehearsals so everybody knew what needed to be done by the time they went to go shoot those final scenes and I think it shows in in Griffith's direction and there's just there's so many scattered throughout I mean there's a lot of powerful images I just remember the one where um, the little colonel comes home and he has that scene with his younger sister where she has all the cotton on her dress and they have that really nice little moment but it's the moment when he goes to the doorway and the mother reaches her arm out to embrace him and you only see the arm the way that shots frame to me that was powerful then it was powerful when I just rewatched it again and it's just surprising how some of those kind of things the basic tenets of film grammar of the language um, just still work for me today yeah I mean it's interesting you say that because as I said I went back and there's um, I think the keynote the, the keynote box I'm talking about is called When the Movies Begin and it's really interesting because obviously you can tell when you're watching these early filmmakers is the fact that they've obviously got this thing being filmed and you can see the progression of film vocabulary and grammar going through years and it was really odd to me because I was watching a, one of them and it was very simply, I think it was in St. Petersburg in Russia and for the first time I noticed what whilst watching these early films the camera suddenly panned to the left and it it's, it's so simple and it's such a, a simple movement, but you can tell the person making the film thought, oh, well, I'll be able to show more if I, if I move the camera to the left. And you go very, very quickly from quite basic storytelling to suddenly you get The Birth of the Nation. And The Birth of the Nation wasn't the first silent epic to come out. There was um, an Italian film, which the name of which escapes me. Um, I think it was made in like 1912, which I think was about three hours. There's which, a Qu Queen Elizabeth too. I think was four reels. Yeah, there's a there's a few yeah. floating around there, but I remember I, I've seen those as well, and none of them really hold up. As as, as well. Griffith liked to say, there were 12 shots in four reels of Queen Elizabeth, where there are 68 shots in Griffith's one re reeler 
the sands of D. So, I mean, it didn't impress him, I think, on a film grammar level. And I think that's probably why he was so itching to expand out the canvas and get out of, you know, the small one or two reelers and get into something that big. Because he knew that I think he could do it better than what he had seen. Yeah, and it was when you when you go and you watch Birth Nation, I mean, it's just simple things like cuts from people looking at a flower to a close-up of the flower or point of views of... You know, how about the interior editing where you see what they're thinking about, a character and another place? I mean, I, just brilliant. I mean, there's so many fade the blacks to an image and fade back. That's David Fincher's technique. You've been seeing him using all that even modern day today, but you can just sort of see the, the genesis of just using the film language that to express things visually. Again, you know, you're, you're just you're following these ideas with very limited sort of title cards to, to push the story along. And he does, which when you make a historical epic as well, you have to personalise the story to make it resonate. And I, you know, I go back to James Cameron's Titanic. You, to feel the agony and the loss of that ship, you turn it into a love story. And Griffith does a similar thing in this where he makes something as big as the American Civil War and he condenses it to a personal level where it's, it's about families and it's about people. And you buy into it and you feel the kind of the emotional impact of of it you know on the on the battlefields when you're seeing into the image you can see miles into it almost and there's there's stuff going on in the foreground the background the middle ground and then he, he manages to personalize the tragedy of people dying and yeah it to to modernize it might look slightly the, the acting might look slightly terrible but i mean that's that's a completely never another point but the fact of the matter is he manages to convey the tragedy of the situation in a very personalized way and from that perspective i find just going back and seeing how far seeing cinema was a very young format at this stage and you go from its inception to this in a, an incredibly short space of time and yeah I, I again it's kind of what you kind of touched on john is the fact that i think occasionally going back and watching films like the birth of a nation if you are interested in filmmaking it's the best thing you can possibly do because you see the origins of everything that you see in modern cinema i i can't under utterly understate how important it is to really kind of get into the the, the mechanics and the vocabulary of film and you got to sort of appreciate the fact that this is an independent film this isn't a studio movie i mean i think uh Griffith had hired the camera guy that had built some of Edison's cameras to build one that intentionally got around the patents at that time. So they wouldn't even be beholden to anyone else. So it's interesting that, you know, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, I guess you have to put yourself back into what it would have been like in 1915 to go to see a movie that would have been three hours, that would have had a full orchestra, that would have had people firing sound effects from behind the screen and doing all of this so it's almost like a live theater cinema event. The power and the impact of that on a Nickelodeon audience had to be incredible, and it was, because the film obviously was a, was a big, tremendous success in its day. But the impact of that would also sort of be what you were also talking about earlier. It's the DNA for the modern blockbuster in, in so many ways. I mean... This is going to sound terrible, so just please take it in the, the academic way. But you could almost read into when he puts on the mask, he's like a superhero going to rescue his town or his people. It happens to be the horrible mask of the KKK. And, but in the context of the story they set up, the villains that they set up, he was defending 
in, in the context of the story, that would have been his role as the hero. And it's almost interesting when I looked at it now in the superhero culture that we live on, that's what he would have been seen as in that time period, in that day, as. Um, and I thought that was kind of an extra sort of shock. Um, but, uh, yeah, the film grammar in terms of the way he blocks characters, the way one will leave the room and one will enter the frame, all that kind of stuff still caught my eye today. I mean, they talk about the great tracking shots. There's only eight of them in the movie, so they're very sparing. So when he uses a tracking shot, it really jumps out at you because everything else is so still and so controlled. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, again, I think it's a film that's like, you know, you have your watershed movies and, you know, I think you owe a lot to malaise in the early film work. I mean, obviously Griffith didn't invent every single technique in this movie, but he did sort of take them all and put them into a dramatic film that sort of became a showcase for everything that movies were at that time. And then what they could also be. And it's interesting that you mentioned about audiences, I read that they tried to do a sound version by the 1930. They were going to do the all-sound version of, of Birth, and they did it, and audiences didn't respond. They responded well to the uh, action scenes, but the dramatic scenes, they kind of laughed at in a way because there had been enough time in another 15 years where the, the attitudes and moods had changed and dramatics had changed. So when you look at the acting and the style, that was sort of like the standard of 1915, but it would keep evolving and changing, obviously, as films continued. So that's an interesting little note as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's what, what, the first American film that was 12 reels long, the first ones that was shown in uh, multiple theaters, it cost $2 to see it. Imagine that. Two bucks. That, that's extraordinary. Oh, totally. I mean, this is the thing as well. I mean, you're, you're going to watch a film. That's, I mean, it's a long film. Three, three hours. hours. Three that's hours. a long film it's today. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's a, it's a long, long film. And I mean, as you sort of what she said as well, the, the, the brilliance of making it of, of this film as well is it's really you, you can tell what's going on. Mm -hmm. I know that seems like a really basic minimum requirement of going to a film that you can tell what's going on. But you know, this thing, you're not, you haven't got dialogue. You're using title cards every now and then. The tinting but, helps too, because he'll tint the, the different places so you kind of know where you are. And then when the red comes in, it's shocking. The, the, the only thing about the tinting is that from what I understand as well, this film has been through so many re-edits and re-tintings. Right. Totally. How do we know? Yeah. Yeah. It, I worry about the music score that way too. When I was listening to it, it's like, how much is this the music score that was originally intended versus? But from what from what I read, it seems like a lot of the same cues were in the original premiere release. So. Well, one of the things that's lacking definitely in the Master Cinema version is the Ride of the Valkyries, which apparently. Oh, that was in the version I watched. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's that's quite interesting. We'll have to go get to that in a bit. But I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, this is this is a three-hour film, and you know exactly what's going on, and to have that complex a story well i suppose it's not even say it's a complex story but to have a story that's three hours that you know what's going on i mean you know, you're asking people to come in sit on sit where perhaps you know they might have watched films before at the cinema which were an hour two hours tops and say this rolls into town you know, three hours plus and yeah it's, it's, it's a hard work i mean i don't know if there was an intermission um yeah there I, was, I, would probably, I would probably yeah there was yeah i would probably assume that there was but it's to to get the story from A to B to C over that time, and to, it's a gripping story. Let's be honest; it's it does hold you. It does could command your attention. I think from that alone, it's like like I've said before. If if 
if you want to find out about storytelling, go back and watch films like this because it, it's all done with the art of cinema as opposed to reams and reams of dialogue. And I think that's, again, it, it kind of goes into that, that issue with The Birth of the Nation where I, I like to watch it with my kind of film historian critic hat on as opposed to the more, to, to kind of, I suppose trump the film on its subject matter. And I know Joachim, you said that you for firstly it was a, it was a walkout for you, but I, mm-hmm. I, I personally kind of think that it's one that you have to kind of detach yourself from a little bit to fully enjoy, as it were. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it looks remarkable to you, um, and it was made only fifty years after the end of the Civil War, which is quite like it's amazing, really, when you think about it. It's still close. There's people alive that remember it going to see this movie in the re- and and apparently Griffith hired people that were there to help him recreate the scenes and the battles and I was reading in this book he even challenged people he'd offer them $10,000 if they could find any inaccuracies and things like that. But I think that was more just part of the promotional push that helped create the legend of it because while the film might have cost 100,000, they told people it cost 500,000 so they could justify their $2 ticket, you know. If it had, you know, 2 or 300 extras in the scene, they would say it had 1800 extras or whatever, you know, just everything about this had to be the biggest in terms of, you know, what movies were and uh and that. But let me ask you this. I mean, when you see like okay, Act 1. What if they would have just released Act 1 and then had the second half as a sequel a year later? Like an hour and a half movie would have been plenty in 1915 what do you think the reaction would have been to just that first half and the the civil war story and the camerons and the and the stonemans yeah i mean that's a really really interesting point actually i i think i mean you can you'll find a fence in it i'm not saying you won't oh no 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 i mean the film let's be let's be brutal the film starts by suggesting that the arrival of black people in america is the downfall of American civilization. I mean, totally. from, from its from its very from its very, and that's actually something going when I watched it for the first time. I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't remember this. And there's like a Puritan, and mm-hmm. and it, it, it's almost laughable because in in the book I was reading about it, the fact that um, people even debated whether or not there was a kind of a racist element to it. It, it sets itself up f- fairly explicitly from the off. But I mean, it's a really interesting point. If you, you know, if you had Birth of Nation Part One and Two, because that first half, uh, is it, am I right in thinking it culminates in the assassination of of Lincoln? Lincoln. Right. You don't get yeah, the, yeah. the Lynch characters not introduced yet. The whole Stoneman and all of their plotting and because I mean, here's the second question: What happens to America if Lincoln doesn't isn't assassinated? Is the South treated differently? What is the South like with Lincoln alive? I mean, that's the big. That's the other story of, of a big what if in this country that you know has been going on. Well, forever. I mean, this yeah. is this is the thing that the historical revision revisionism that's going on in this film is pretty incredible as well. But I mean, yeah, if, if you if you do that, if you do that first part one, I think people, yeah. Let's say for example, let's say for example, part one got made and part two never got made. People, I think, would be speculating to this day. Well, what would part two? I don't think in their wildest dreams it would end up being what what it is. I think, I think, but you would probably still this. I I, I genuinely believe people would probably say, "Oh well, Birth of a Nation Part One is a true masterpiece." Of, I mean, we we obviously say it about the film and the whole, but I think it might even have greater admiration were it not for the for that second half. 
But the historical revisionism that goes on in this film was another aspect that completely amazed me. Because, like I said, I'm working, before we start, I think, um, before we start recording, I'm working my way through um, the Ken Burns films at the moment and uh, the Shelby Foote's account of the Civil War. And it seems to me that there's a kind of, in this film, they're completely rewriting Lincoln's role as being a friend to the South. And when he dies, I think it's explicitly, I think one of the, one of the family members said, oh, we've lost our best friend or something like that. And you're thinking, that's, I, you're thinking, hang on a second here. This is the, the person who has basically invaded uh, your lands. I mean, and, you know, ousted Jefferson Davis. And surely uh, the fact that he is the reason why this country's gone to war in many respects it's quite incredible they kind of then see him as being a friend to the south and it it that was an aspect of the film which i found quite strange as well because the other thing as well it does is the use of the title cards it the title cards i think try to give it historical it tries to back up its bogus histor historical kind of interpretation of what happened and I, I was actually reading it that like Griffith, he was quite keen to, to use quotes to, to kind of back up this view of what was going on, which wasn't quite the well, obviously blatant. We know it wasn't the case now. I don't believe that when Lincoln was killed, anyone in the South was particularly bothered at all, to be brutally honest with you. But I, this is the, this is again, we get into that kind of issue with the birth of a nation where it, it is a very dubious revisionist look at, well, I suppose. Set, most importantly, the reconstruction period of the South. It is like, it's a celebration of the the Southern honour, sort of the South as the heroic underdogs, the sort of greedy, greedy people descending upon the South after Lincoln's assassination and kind of defiling the honoured traditions of power over the land. Um, and he's kind of, it's kind of this weird revisionist look at what really happened and the north and south need to come together to protect their Aryan birthright or something well the, the, issue, the issue is isn't it that let's let's be brutally honest the moral of this film is blacks should be put in their place and whites should be the supreme race and what the film sort of says is the south was kind of right all along the fact that you have in the north you have obviously the worst thing that can happen is you can have black and white people interbreed. That's obviously, as soon as that happens, you are messing with racial purity. And the, this is when, obviously when the film gets into its most controversial moment, but it's, a, it's basically sort of saying we need a racially pure America. And yes, this awful civil war's happened, but the, the, the South in its kind of nobility and its ability and its... Actually, it's forgiving nature is able to oversee uh, uh, kind of get over the fact that you've had this civil war and then move on to the real cause which is to rid america of black people and again when you're watching it it's quite when, when i went back when i was watching it again last week in preparation for this i was like oh my god you know this is yeah you know, it, it's it's fascism of sorts and not even of <laughs> I love I love how it's always like the scalawag white captain or something like that, you know, that that leads all the uh, the the rogue uh, son. Yeah, it's 
I mean, it is, yeah, it's uncomfortable viewing yeah. for sure. But. Uh, El Norte uh, today. Uh, and that is, um, if you're not familiar with it, that is a film about um, immigrants coming from Guatemala. It's an excellent film. Um, and it's sort of interesting looking at that on and comparing it to Birth of a Nation and how these, these people that we... Uh, in Birth of a Nation are told they are coming to rob us and take over our land. And that race is in a much more um, even-handed manner, let's say. I, th- I think the thing about Birth of a Nation, I mean, this is one thing I would say about it. I don't think it's necessarily saying these people, black people are demons. I think it's saying they're not able to... They're not able to do the things that white people are able to. And the best thing that sums it up is... That would have been their perspective. That would have been their thinking at the time. Yeah, and I think you have to look at it from... They wouldn't have been educated. So that along right there, I mean, that already created classes among the whites, those that were educated and those that weren't. And I think you have to look at it from when when the time the film was made. And I think it's a reflection of the culture of what, of when it was made. Mm-hmm. And the fact, I mean, the, the scene that always does it for me is when um, you, you show um, the, 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 I think it's like the, the Senate or something like that, or the, the kind of like the local government building where you know, the black people have, have taken over and they're all drinking. And Taking off their shoes, putting them on the desk. Yeah, and, it, and it's like, it's like, and it, and I, it's so hard not to sound like awful when I say this, but... I genuinely believe that's what people thought. They were like, they, 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 they can't run things, bless them. They're too stupid to do this. That's why you need us in charge. And you're watching that scene, and obviously when you see it now, you're thinking, oh my God. But I, I think it's a genuine reflection of people's attitude at the time. No, and I think the key comment that you made earlier, that if you'd have made this movie 10 years later, it would have been different. You just wouldn't have done it the same way. You just it, it, it does it reflects the time period of just that small little bubble from like 1900 to 1915 in some ways of, of the lingering uh, sentiments after the war. Because like 50 years is, you know, when you think about like, you know, we have now 50 year distance from the Vietnam War, I guess. Right. Give or take, you know, coming up on on that. So, I mean, it's going to be fresh in the memory of a lot of people that live through it for sure. And they're all going to have, you know, conflicting and different views. For sure, because they all—I mean, it's probably hard to know someone that didn't know someone that died in that war, also. You know, and, and the, the tragic effects that it had just on on just everyday Americans in the country. Argument of the the context of its time, um, I think, it's a difficult one to make, seeing as in many parts of the Americas, in many states. So obviously, this is not like a commonplace conception that blacks are not able so um it's very interesting to hear what the NACP did on the film um did you guys read about that hampton epilogue yes yeah where they had um it was a documentary footage that was filmed was it yeah it was like um black college kids or something like that was to show the fact that they weren't it was it was completely the complete opposite of what the film had shown right it's shown the prog- progress of the black americans since that particular time period and that was like played at the end of the epilogue of some showings just to sort of cool off the anger oh no they they were attacking the film from the very beginning i mean I, it's 
in the research that I did, I mean, they repeatedly just said that the scenes of Gus chasing Flora, obviously, you know, and the, the scenes of uh, Lynch wanting to force the marriage into the white girl. They, they wanted those scenes out, but uh, they, they did not obviously get deleted. Well, I mean, I mean, it's funny you talk about the scene where Gus is chasing Flora because that's another one as well when you watch that now. Um, and this film isn't so great on women either because the subtext of, the, of, of, of that scene are that she should kill herself rather than go with him. And that's like, there's that was another kind of film I found particularly awkward about it. I can't remember what the exact... Um, title card was but basically it was sort of saying like in order to kind of defend in order to kind of keep her honor she shouldn't even consider being raped by this man which if you replace gus with an indian magua do you have the same scene in last of the mohicans where she takes yeah no totally yeah 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 interesting i mean it's drama though these are these are just drama techniques that i can see you know, Griffith using to to get at the audience. I mean, this is the tragic death, the young girl that we've been seeing throughout. And think about all, he's really smart as a dramatist, how he built all these threads up and how he ultimately pays them off and how certain connections come together. I mean, even the um, the girl in the hospital and the other boy and how they get together and she rejects him because he's part of the clan, you know? And then when she gets abducted, she you know, he's a hero at the end. I mean, it's just, it's funny to see how all these dramatic threads and in the opening, how they all end up, end up paying off ultimately in the story. Well, I mean, this is this is the thing about when you talk about kind of the drama in this film. I mean, this a scene that really stuck out for me was um, the assassination of Lincoln, because every, you know what's going to happen in that scene, and it shows how great a director is because it's genuinely really exciting, and he builds the suspense, he plays with time um, brilliantly in that scene, and sets up the fact that this assassination is going to happen, and you, it, it, it just dawned on me when I was watching that. Like you, like I said, we all know what's going to happen. But Griffith managed, he, he extends the amount of time, he builds the tension to that scene, and it really hit home when it happened. Our characters are um, there that we know, so they're taking part in history. And I like the, t- the title card, too, that goes time, 1013, act three, scene two, just getting down to the essentials of when it happened. Oh, how about Lincoln when he gets that chill right before his death, too? has to put on that little blanket. I mean, I don't know. Those are directorial touches to me, though. But in silent film, they're very interesting because they resonate. No, totally. I, it was, it, again, you know, seeing... I, th- I think once I kind of divorced myself from the subject matter, watching that, um, again, I go, I, I go back to what I was saying about looking at the, the origins of film grammar and understanding how you build tension in the scene. Um, it, it's all there. It's all there in that moment. I, I especially felt with the Lincoln assassination. Do you get a com- oh? I was, I was, do you get a comedy moment out of that bit with the Elise and the guard when he kind of sighs? You know, do you know the scene I'm talking about when she's in the hospital and the guards kind of looking after her and she's like, "I'm not interested in you," and he kind of sighs. He does it twice. It's a funny thing because he sets up the gag and then he pays it off a second time. And I, I found myself, I laughed out loud twice when we were watching it. <laughs> and then I remembered the last time I watched the movie and it's like, oh yeah, I remember that now. That's a funny little bit, you know, just a quiet little silent moment. But because uh, yeah, there's so many heavy dramatic things in terms of war and death and whatnot. There's not really a lot of comedy in the picture in terms of like, like little moments like that. At Main Street in Piedmont. Uh, every time we see that street, it 
its appearance kind of changes and it mirrors the mood of like the social and political flowery street and you have families walking around and sun is shining and everything and then you have the more like war-fueled streets where you have bonfires in the street yeah people in the south they are starting the war like really strong and everyone's really pro-war and then in the end you have like ben returning home from war uh, we have like broke it alone so it's really interesting how he uses that same street in so many di- yeah it's, yeah it's repetition isn't it but it's repetition i mean that the, or you know if you look at that i mean like the, the costume design of the characters as well when um like obviously the war starts everyone's kind of dressed quite well and by the end of it they're kind of literally like wearing rags with bits of cotton stuck to them and he does yeah he shows the kind of the the disintegration of the South as it goes on. I mean, I, 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 that's one thing I would say about it, the kind of the art direction of this film. I was absolutely blown away with and just the depth of the image. I mean, when you see everyone going to war, you can see people sat on houses like so far into the image. It's a good, it's a good point about that detail because you can see it in the Cameron's house when things are good and they're lush and then when things are bad and they're giving their final you know, goods and their clothing for the cause, everything's bare off the walls. I mean, everything is sort of stripped down. It's, yeah, it, it has a nice visual impact in subtle ways, and it is all through art direction. And again, I think that's the economics of, of, of good storytelling is you don't need someone saying how bad things are, just strip the floorboards off and have the... I mean, I, th- I actually noticed, I think... In one, in, in one of those scenes where a picture had been removed and you could see the outline of the picture on the wall. And it, and it was and just little moments like that that show the fact that it's kind of the reconstruction period. And the fact they turn it into like a boarding house, don't they? I think they stick a sign up on, a, on one of the pillars and you sort of see this, the affluent. Yeah, and it's yeah, it really it really resonates. You do you do kind of feel the you feel you know sorry for them in a way because obviously of everything that they're going through. I mean, obviously, it's not a first film from a director. I mean, you kind of need to make four hundred little short movies or at least have you know some background in theater and other areas before you sort of like unleash it all on this. But I could see why most of the picture was probably in Griffith's head, and it was just sort of you know I, I don't know if there was ever a complete script of it but there were outlines about what they wanted to do and probably a lot of it was discovered by what happened in rehearsals and what actors were bringing to it and and that kind of thing i mean i think it's, it's time to talk about the performances in in this really because i mean i, I know I, I i said earlier that you have to kind of give it credit for um the fact that the, the performances are from a certain time and place but that being said i was really struck by the performances I, I think they're quite good. I mean, there's a lot of long little glances. I mean, yes, they're going to be large in their gestures and movements, but I don't know in 1915 if that's a legitimate critique for acting in, in films. It, it could be a critique 15 years later by 1930 for sure. But I think by then, by judging of what... Again, what is your standard for acting in 1915? Go look at a lot of other kind of movies and one-reelers and whatnot, and you can see a difference in the acting in those movies and in Griffith's movies. And it's definitely the re- rehearsals that he's been doing before. And the, he's an actor's director in how he mm-hmm. utilizes their performance. It's not going in for the medium. It's utilizing every technique so he can elevate their performance as well. And the way he blocks them within the scene, you know, to where it's, you know, he can move them to different corners of, of the set 
you know, so where it, it might start up to where two characters are kind of closer to the camera, but the scene will end where they're farther back. So he's, it's very interesting blocking in terms of it's theatrical, but yet it works within the context of his frame. And it's, it's busy, but not ever just busy for the sake of being busy. It always feels functional, dramatically functional. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, one one book that really got me was um, in the in the hospital scenes. Um, you have like in obviously in the foreground, um, because the women are around and they're kind of they, you have the this moment where he's kind of waking up from his kind of slumber. But if you look into the image and see the actors in the background, it looks it. What, what struck me, I suppose, was like how lifelike i thought it was everyone like everyone's obviously been given very clear direction they don't look like act they don't look like extras being extras they look like they're genuinely doing something and it, it was it, it, it's these little kind of things that you notice but i mean there's one scene in the hospital where if you look into the background there's about 10 different extras walking around tending to people and there's conversations going on and this is obviously stuff that he's thought about and given direction to those people. And there's one particular moment where I think it's like a gen, he looks like a general or an officer or something like that, but he's walking along the beds um, tr- talking to the wounded. And you, and you can almost see that I, would, I wouldn't be at all surprised if those, if those were scripted moments as well, because there's one part, there's a guy, a soldier sat on the end of a bed and he's, he's got his hands on his head. And this kind of officer guy walks up to him he, he, and he's, he's chatting to him and he puts his hand on his head and he, he nods and they both nod on. And I thought that's a little attention to details mm-hmm. like that that I really admire about it. And that probably came out of having six months to rehearse this movie and work out a lot of things, try things. From what I read, that's what the actors would do is they would just keep doing the same scenes over and over and over again, honing it, trying new things, playing, basically. He, he let his actors be players. And and help and they actually are part of the creation of the final product in that way. And in ultimately like an orchestra, uh, sort of like a, a conductor of an orchestra, Griffith this sort of fine tuning, you know, all of these other things. But he's hired all of these people, many of them he's worked with before, for the, the specific reason is he knows that they're going to deliver for him. And of course, you got to talk about you know Billy Bitzer, his cinematographer, who is probably a, another key collaborator on this and able to. Um, keep the visual look of it and i think he had two different lenses to work with on the picture but uh the amount of footage that was shot and i think he had a female editor if i if i recall correctly but just being able to deal with what over 150,000 feet of film or something like that to edit together 12,000 feet that's just uh that's a lot of footage he probably just shot a lot of things and just over and over and over again to hone it down to exactly what we see but imagine also in 1915 just going to see the scenes of Lincoln on screen or when Lee surrenders. Being able to see history sort of played like that in a film was probably a very new and interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is another aspect I was thinking about it when I was, I was watching it was um, there's no way of getting around the fact that a lot of people consume history through watching films and we, we almost take for granted sometimes that when you when you watch a historical film that you are getting some kind of representation of seeing it as it was and i've always found like if, if, if like braveheart for example um if people actually think you're getting the story of william wallace 
watching that, you, you're deluded because William Wallace and you know Robert the Bruce, 200 years separate those two guys. But I know a lot of people who will watch Braveheart and go, God, yeah, that's that's that that, that showed me a little bit of history and, and, and blah blah blah. Great, but it, it's it's the strange thing about film is its ability to. I think show history and for people to interpret it what they're seeing as being history when for the most part I think you have to kind of look at it and sort of say right take things with a pinch of salt I'll watch Braveheart and because I do know a little bit about history we'll say well it's a very very entertaining film but trust me um that the fact that Longshanks dies as he's being you know cut to ribbons you know Longshanks died years after William Wallace but People would have gone and watched this and, and would have thought, right, yeah, we're seeing a bit of history here. We're seeing something which which actually happened. And it would it, it would have resonated with them like, totally. And as you say, like seeing Lincoln, seeing that moment, which is something which had only been immortalised through paintings and through writings, actually seeing that, I can imagine that for contemporary audience, it would have been nothing short of utterly thrilling to see that. And as we've sort of touched on the fact, this was, I mean, although we're talking like 50 years after the end of these events, it's still, it's still long enough to be fresh in the memory. It's still long enough that your grandfather would have told you about it. Something might even, you, you, it still might be there in the consciousness. So yeah, I can imagine just seeing those moments would have been quite extraordinary. And then you have that quote from Woodrow Wilson. It's like writing history with lightning when it was screened at the White House. That's always uh now that now some people say that didn't really you know he didn't really say that but you know you know print the legend if not the truth but it's a good quote for sure especially for its time um, because isn't all history interpretational anyway to whoever whoever gets to write it I mean whether it's it's in book form or whatever if you make a play you always have to make choices you know no matter what you're trying to do for you know, recreation. I mean, even Griffith had to recreate costumes. It's not like he could go get real muskets from the time period and do it. They had to go get props and they had to make their own cannons because they didn't have that stuff anymore. So everything is going to be interpretational history. I mean, the piece of film that always blows me away is there's a, there's a POV shot of just going down Market Street of San Francisco from 1906, and it's before the earthquake hits. That is history. There's no faking. That's just a single camera shot, and it just pushes right down the street, and you see exactly what life was like in 1906. There's, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a couple of people that might look at the camera and make notice, but there's no fakery or recreation in it. That's what true history is, is when you can capture something like that, true and raw. But if you're not doing that, you're recreating, and that's just the difference, you know, and that's okay. Yeah, it's, it's you don't really have another option, really. So, I mean, if you want to make drama and fiction and, and, and tell stories on the stage or on film, uh, that's why you hire great people that can make that stuff look great for you. Because when it doesn't look right, the audience knows and it doesn't feel right and you can't sell those moments. And I think because basically the details in Griffith's movie looked right, he was able to sell so much more. I think interesting as well. I, think, I, I genuinely believe. I think Griffith thought this was history as well. 
I, I mean, there's, there's, I, mean, I yeah. don't know if you, did you watch it, Yogi? I, I, I genuinely think yeah, that he I thought mean, he was making And it could have been the history he was brought, I don't know how, I don't know the details of his education and background, but again, it's going to be regional. It's going to be how you were educated and brought up and what states and what kind of prejudice you were subject to that's going to form a lot of those kind of, you know, opinions and attitudes, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's, a, there's, I don't know if you, if you watched it, Joachim, but on the uh, Mars Cinema release, there's that, uh, from there was he recorded like an introduction to the to when it was re-released and um no no i mean he's completely you know this is this this is how it was folks you know this is an accurate portrayal of history and um, if that's what you think you're making then if he genuinely believes in what he's making then fair play to him you know, i mean if he captured that obviously. in a bottle and he says look racism's bad i've captured it here it is that's one thing you know, and obviously he had different views on different things as he got older. I mean, intolerance is kind of a reaction to the reaction of Birth of a Nation in many ways. I mean, this is interesting, actually, to, to talk about intolerance because everything I've read in preparation for this episode, intolerance, there was there's one school of thought. And I mean, John, you remember... Um, John Barlow, uh, sorry, Joe Barlow's excellent Cinema Slave podcast from the from the early days of podcasting, and Joe did an episode once about the birth of a nation in which he it's one of the few times I completely disagreed with everything he said because he spoke about intolerance as being kind of Griffith's apology for this film or the fact that he was so appalled that that people had thought he had been racist, and I remember thinking at the time like. I didn't agree with, with what Joe was saying and everything I've read since and everything I've seen since, like Intolerance was well, was well into, into preparation whilst he was making this film. Intolerance is about intolerance and one of the intolerances Griffiths was talking about was people's intolerance of this film. He wasn't, he wasn't, he, he wasn't making a film about, oh God, you know, hang on a minute, I've just, I've just portrayed black people to be subordinate idiots who need white people money how can people have possibly imagined that was racist oh god i'm gonna make intolerance to apologize it's not like you know, it's not like revelatory when you have in the marketing of the, the birth of a nation people dressed as the ku klux klan riding through the town it was playing in to gr drum up some support for it i think he knew f full well what he was doing and intolerance is a film which He's making a film about humans' intolerance towards other people as a way of saying, "Hey, actually, you're just being intolerant of me." I, I, it's, it, this is this is part of my issue with one of the reasons why I call intolerance intolerable because on on the two times I've put myself through it, I've just been for various reasons. I, I I've struggled to make it to the end. But don't you think in that time that wouldn't have been considered a racist thought? When he was growing up, to have those views, you wouldn't have been called. You wouldn't oh, have no, been called a racist. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. totally. I imagine if you lived in. I mean, I mean it, are you, you're from Texas. Yeah. I mean, I, no, totally. I mean, that's. I mean, that's why when I look at Birth of a Nation, I don't. It's hard to know where the fiction and the honesty and the reality all lie in there. But obviously, those feelings were held true. Now, Thomas Dixon was inspired to write the Leopard Spots because of a black man that did rape a white woman and was not brought to proper justice for it. And this angered him and, and, and haunted him, I guess, enough to where it would, it would fuel his writings. So 
I mean, an incident. I mean, you know, and, and unfortunately, does that become representation of everything? No, it's ridiculous. But fiction has a way of doing that to where whatever you see, it's unfortunately the black people represented in this film have to represent all the black people. And that's unfair. So you get into all of these what I call dramatic stereotypes because they become characters that serve dramatic functions of the story he's trying to tell. Um, and he needs villains, and he needs all of these other sort of mechanic things. And these were the ones that would have been available to him at that time. And yeah, had he made the film in a different time, he might have used Indians, or he might have used the Russians, or he might have used, you know, whatever, to be the bad element that's coming in to, to change everything. Right, that don't accept that America's the experiment about moving forward and not, you know, that's, that's the whole idea. It's never going to be like it was yesterday. That's that's what America's about. It's always changing. Yeah, I mean, I've just I've literally um, just watched the Ken Burns film about the Statue of Liberty. It was it, it was it was really interesting to me actually because it did ask some profound questions. What, what is this? What what is this thing that we have? You know, what is what does it mean? You know, to have liberty. What, what from what what does it mean to us really? And. Yeah, it, it kind of got me thinking about this film as I as I, I was watching it. I, I sort of thought, you know, what what is America? And I think this this film suggests that America should just be a purely a pure white America, where you, you shouldn't have any interbreeding at all. It should just be completely white. And the fact that any kind of racial intermixing is ultimately an incredibly bad thing. Um, and I guess it kind of comes back to the fact that the birth of nation is is why you have to look at it in the con in the context of when it was made, and I I genuinely believe that the people making it and to a lot of people watching it would he, he's making a film for his audience who would who, who watch it and go yeah that's bang on that you know, that that is that is that's that's absolutely how it should be. Uh, talking about the music, um, Braille, the composer, he had like original composed music with the principal love theme, for example. Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I remember Audlin saying to Dixie, to um, I think uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, um, and also the In the Hall of the Mountain of the King. Um, I just and also the Ride of the Valkyries, which I also recognized. You know, I didn't think the recording of it was that great, but I, I did recognize that particular track in there. But again, I, I often wonder, hearing an 80-piece orchestra do this live while you're watching the movie with people shooting off blanks and guns for sound effects must have just been mind-blowing to to people in in 1915. Just nothing. I mean. It was their avatar moment, if you think about it, in some ways, you know, something they'd never seen. Oh, before. totally. Totally. And I mean, and just kind of like um, expand on that. I recently, about three weeks ago, went to go and watch Hans Zimmer in concert with a massive orchestra. And I tell you now, hearing The Dark Knight perform live with an orchestra, it's it was goosebump inducing. And hearing some of those themes from Interstellar and... Um, Inception. It, it was just unbelievable. The only the only downside, I suppose, of the experience was they weren't playing the clips from the films. But it, there's something about hearing music live and those strings and that the the, the bass that comes off them and it is unbelievable. And I, I would I would love to see this film with an orchestra and hear it because I, I 
I think it would really just bring out the it would fit in the blanks I think I suppose from a lot of perspectives on the kind of the audible side of things mm. I don't think the Master Cinema um, release has those original scores in it I don't think it has the from everything you're saying I think leads me to believe that the, uh, is it the Kino version that you have? I believe that's the one. Our, the Image Entertainment, I believe, logo came up when I put the DVD right. in. Right. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we get that. So, yeah, just to hear it. I mean, if you go, you know, we're going, we're going to see this film you know, with a live audio, with a live orchestra of that size. The, the experience of it and the fact that you're watching something that's so long. Yeah, like you say, I, th I think. To be there in those contemporary audiences, I think it'd be stirring stuff. And you have a director that knows music. I mean, he's making specific musical choices to play along um, along with his visuals and also for mood and feeling. So it's not just like, I need just some piano player to kick out a track to, that, that accompanies it, you know, just so there's music. It's very, very specifically chosen music, uh, both classical and also from uh, the composer and the score. So... You know, I think that's just something else that adds to, you know, the, the legacy of the DNA of the watermark and how powerful, you know, this film was. Um, one of the things that uh, I always liked is uh, Peter Bogdanovich did a film in 1976 called Nickelodeon. And it was about the early days of movie making when they were running around without their patents, illegally making their little shorts and selling them off. And it was based on all stories that had been told to Bogdanovich about mm. all of those early days of filmmaking. So it's really just sort of a collection. <laughs> it's a history movie is what it is, a collection of stories realized into small little vignettes. But the film climaxes with the entire cast going to the premiere of birth of a nation what a uh, february 8th 1915 and to me you know the thing that sells it the most is you know you get the reactions of everybody afterwards and everybody's you know you see burt reynolds cry during it and some of the other people to show the emotion but at the end of it you see a shot of ryan o'neill and he's just sitting there stunned and the movie's over everyone's on their feet clapping but this is a writer director a guy who's made films before and that reaction to me says it all of just what the impact must have been like because everything changed. His whole world is rearranged. He's seen something that is, is so far beyond his own abilities but all the other abilities of that time and what an impact that might have been. So that's a nice little way to sort of get a peek into what that might have been like. The, the all-white, you know, tuxedo-dressed affair, obviously, at the premiere, but uh, how history was changed, how movies would never be the same after that moment. Have either of you two heard of The uh, Birth of a Race from 1919? I've heard... Oh, well, oh, what about Fall of a Nation? Yeah, there's a sequel. I, there is a Thomas sequel. Dixon Jr., actually. Now, <laughs> you know, add to all those other careers he had, he added Filmmaker to it before he was done. He actually directed a movie and wrote it called Fall of a Nation. I mean, this guy's a real a regular Michael Crichton of its day. It's just, you know, getting into all kinds of things. But... Uh, yeah, no, and I, it's lost. There's there's no record of it. Uh, the plot, it says here, according to Wiki, um, the Fall Nation is an attack on the pacifism of William Jennings Bryant and Henry Ford and a plea for American preparedness for war. America is unprepared for an attack by the European Confederated Army, a European army headed 
by Germany. The army invades America and executes children and war veterans. However, America is saved by a pro-war congressman who raises an army to defeat the invaders with the support of the suffragette. According to the Internet Movie Database, the film is split into three sections, A Nation Falls, The Heel of the Conqueror, and The Uprising Two Years Later. So basically, like all true sequels, he just remade the movie and found a different villain. Europe. <laughs> Europe. That's who it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like those Nazis. Okay, the Nazis are always reliable. Sorry, The Birth of a Race. That was um, actually a group of independent black filmmakers uh, who made a film in response to Griffith's film. Uh, but they had a more, obviously, a more positive image of African-Americans. But it was largely ignored uh, from what I could read. So It'd be interesting to remake it from the black perspective. The same story, same families. You actually have a film coming out now in 2016, Birth of a Nation, which is uh, directed by Nat Turner, who... Uh, oh, sorry, Nate Parker, um, who... Yeah, uh, it's an alternate story about a... Uh, a slave and a preacher who is, um, uh, I think he's uh, accepting, uh, accepts an offer to use um, uh, the main protagonist, Nat, as a preacher to subdue unruly slaves. And he, you know, this, uh, this Nat character, he kind of orchestrates an uprising, leading his people to freedom. So this is the Nate Park of Red Tails fame, if you remember that film. Uh, no, I didn't watch Red Tails. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I guess this is I mean, the thing about Birth Nation. is like, where, where, do, where do you see this film kind of... Cause I, 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 in a way, I fear for the Birth of Nation's um, longevity in a way. And this has kind of come about from... I was chatting to someone the other day who is a university lecturer who who, who puts on who does the film course at their given university. He said they're not allowed to show it at the moment, and that they they through fear of offence and basically the fact that it seems so controversial that they that they then they're not putting it on as part of film studies. And I find and it's something I, there was a um, on, I was listening to the Sam Harris podcast the other day and he was talking to a. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a, a university lecturer was saying that the kind of the sensitivity on campus at the moment through various universities that things that like they're too they're too hot to touch, which I find really disturbing, quite frankly. Well, if anything, regardless of, of how you feel about the film, it has a purpose of opening a dialogue about the very subject we're talking about. That can't be a negative thing. If, if a positive dialogue can come out of it, I don't think. I mean, the film can, can be the match that lights the spark that, you know, can spark a conversation that can truly change things, if, if that's the concern. I think the issue is, it's, it's really the fact that, I mean, it, it comes down to the fact that you have like a film like Song of the South, which Disney just won't put out. And the, the key word is context, and that seems to have been lost in this kind of political correctness that they're kind of obviously trying to uh, slightly afraid of. But I mean, I, I was gobsmacked when I heard this quite frankly, and it had it, gone through you know, various, uh, you know, lots of discussions had been had and it was, it was deemed that the fact that birth nation would be talked about and not shown. And I, again, I, I, I think it kind of, if you, if you watch birth of the nation and came out and went, you know what, that film absolutely nails everything. I think you've obviously got mental health issues. 
you're clearly a, 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 a very bizarre person. It's, it's strange to me. I think, yeah, I think it's a dangerous uh, way road down because the the theme of this film for us now is ignorance, and when you're not allowed to like talk about these things, you breed ignorance, and you have like um, you have the killing of uh, Joe Cox in England. And you also have Donald Trump in America. I mean, these things are not going away. So obviously we need to be discussing these issues. I agree. And it's, you know, I luckily for this film, being a silent film and the type of film that it is, it it did date its audience rather quickly. Like we said, even by 1930, audiences had sort of moved on and their tastes had changed. So it's always going to be an historical sort of artifact in a way. And maybe, you know, that's if that's if that's its place in history, that's its place, because I wouldn't just sit. I wouldn't hand to the film and say, oh, you should watch this. It's a great evenings of entertainment to somebody today. I wouldn't do that to him. I mean, I just I you just know how certain films are just not going to necessarily play. But if it was someone who was a filmmaker that wanted to be a better filmmaker, that wanted to improve their film grammar chops, that wanted to understand how dramatic cinematic storytelling can be done, I would make them go through this. I actually now question whether or not the school I went to in Texas even shows this in history and cinema anymore. I bet you they probably don't. This was 19, what, 86, 87 when I saw it for the first time. I bet you they just probably PC'd their way out of it and stopped doing it. And that's too bad because it was it was this and intolerance. Now, I got to say, now maybe my – I have a personal connection to intolerance because um, – one of the things I did when I took the history of cinema class after I took it the first year, I got a job running the projectors for my next three years in college. So every twice a year, I get to, I got to see Birth of a Nation and Tolerance and all these Citizen Kane as sixteen millimeter prints, you know, projected out, and you know that was a, that was a cool way to get access to those movies at that time, I guess. But one of the times when I watched Intolerance, I happened to bring. Um, uh, a little portable CD, and I had Queen's Night at the Opera with me, and I just happened to start it when the film started. And I know people talk about The Wizard of Oz, Pink Floyd, The Wall, Dark Side of the Moon sink, but this sink blew me away for the first 45 minutes of Intolerance. The film came alive in ways that I just had never seen before with the Queen soundtrack. And it just always became like this little secret thing that I had that it's like, if you sync the beginning of, you know, Night of the Opera, you can play the whole album to the first 45 minutes of the movie and certain parts of it really play. I mean, it's, I'm not making it up. It, it really worked for me. So it just, it sort of enhanced my love of that movie in just that extra little way of whenever I watch it now, I do the same thing. I resync it just for fun just to see if it still plays. But, um, I mean, I know intolerance is a whole other, you know, conversation. And I think, you know, again, in filmmaking, I think Griffith shows why he was a, the superior director of his time and the way he was able to stage and, and make some of these films. Uh, we talk about the tracking shot, of course, that was, uh, it gets mentioned sometimes in, in Birth of a Nation. And I clocked about eight of them in the entire movie, you know, uh, specifically when they're riding on their horses. And then they, it's so ridiculous. Even the horses have to have white sheets, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny after a while. It's just kind of silly when you see them all, you know, riding and the horses got their bat costume on too. And who made those costumes for the horses? I mean, <laughs> I know the boy, they were made fast. But that one low angle shot where the horses are sort of rushing at the camera, where the, the camera's low to the ground, that was an impactful shot even 100 years later to me. Um, I thought a lot of the compositions were really good. Uh, 
And so the choices in the filmmaking, I, it made it easy for me to watch it 100 years later, but I don't count. I'm, a, I'm in a minority of an audience that might be interested and want to learn from that kind of thing. So I again, it's not like the entertainment thing that I can recommend you know, to people, but I think it's an important historical cinematic artifact that to suppress it, well, okay, if you suppress the cinematic qualities of it, which is a shame because they're historical, but you also suppress the conversation, even the modern day context of the film, which could be useful in putting it into context. I mean, we don't, we're not sitting here, you know, trying to, I guess, you know, raise a flag and champion it in a way of like, you know, this, this, this great thing, but there can be a great lesson to be learned sometimes from poking open those kind of things and looking at them in a modern context. One of the films that I absolutely adore is um, Triumph of the Will. Mm-hmm. And they were like, what, what the hell? And they were like, hang on a minute. And I said, no, no, watch Triumph of the Will. It's amazing. And they were like, yeah, but it's about Hitler and the Nazis. And I was like, yeah, divorce yourself from that. Triumph of the Will is a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And the, the fact that Birth of the Nation, yeah, it's you have to put it in its context and to not talk about it and to not to deny its existence. It's like the Roman Polanski issue, isn't it? You know, the man's a disgusting, vile paedophile, let's be honest with ourselves. That's not going to stop me from watching Chinatown. That you know, to, to 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 ignore, to, to not watch Chinatown is to not appreciate Robert Town's script, the brilliance of the performances in it, and it, it, it's the, the the key word is context. And I don't watch Triumph of the Will and say, yeah, do you know what those Nazis had it good? What a great idea that lot had. You know, they were bang on with their views. That lot. It's completely different. And this is this is the thing about Birth of the Nation. I think to PC it out as well and you play to this you see it a lot at the moment where there's a the right has an obsession with the left's obsession with political correctness and it doesn't do anyone any favours to say we're not going to watch Birth of the Nation because it's too controversial because you play into those hands and I think it's a vital piece of film history of, of film history and of or and of history DNA of the modern blockbuster is in there in the storytelling, I oh, mean, it's all it's all absolutely. there. And, I mean, I think one of the other sad outcomes of this was the uh, the, the Directors Guild Award, the D.W. Griffith Award. Stanley Kubrick was the last one to be awarded it as the D.W. Griffith Award, and you could look up his acceptance speech. I think it's it's online, and he actually credits you know Griffith in his speech. But they changed the name after that; it was no longer Griffith, and. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those kind of mixed things. I mean, I, I'm sure Stanley Kubrick had no problem, you know, separating, you know, those other elements of from Griffith's work from his his accomplishments as a filmmaker. I mean, I would, you know, Stanley Kubrick was influenced by Griffith. I mean, most all filmmakers are, even if you don't realize it. Yeah, how can you not be? I mean, and this is the thing as well. I mean, that's just. I mean, at the at the moment, I'm watching a lot of Jean Renoir films, especially The Grand Illusion. Now, The Grand Illusion is, I would say, the only Jewish character, the, pre- the pre- presentation of that Jewish character is every stereotype about Jews you could possibly imagine. It's all there. And it, a lot of French cinema from the 20s and 30s and 40s was pretty poor in its presentation of Jewish people. But you don't, no one talks about 
really in any great detail how awful a person Jean Renoir was. I think he was just a product of his time. Um, he believed the fact that you know, pro-Jewish people were they were they were bankers and parts of the upper class, and it, it's all there. And you know, we don't you don't suddenly see this kind of revisionism going on for people like him. Now, I think it's obviously in the case of Birth of Nation, I think it's a, a, a lot more explicit, I, I suppose, where the film's racial undertones are. But this kind of yeah renaming um, an award on the basis of some something that someone did you know, decades ago, I, it's, it's ridiculous, I think. I, I don't think it serves any purpose, really. I saw something else interesting. There was a making of documentary on the DVD I had. And there was one point in the documentary with the, the, the voiceover narrator or whatnot, they wanted to try and show how, you know, Griffith was on a budget and how he made this continuity mistake, how there was this, this tree branch. And you can see all the north on one side of it. And then later on, you can see the same area, but the south is on the other side firing back. And I remember because I watched the making of before I rewatched the movie, and I went, okay, well, you know, whatever. But then when I watched the movie, that's not the case at all. The case is, is that's after they took over that area. So the continuity was, is that's exactly where they would have been in that particular shot. So there was no mistake at all based on the way I saw the film play out. So it's just kind of interesting how in that making of, that was the little thing that they wanted to point out. And if you really would have watched, it really wasn't a mistake at all. But uh, I do like the film. I mean, it's not a film I've, re I've probably seen it since, it's probably my fourth time to see it ever. So it's not like I've seen it, well, probably since school, you know, I, I would have to say, because I used to see it twice a year in school, just because of running projectors. But yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've done the DVD a couple of times, and yeah, just revisiting again recently. But again, you know, I, I like looking at silent films, you know, frankly. I like looking at the technique behind them. I can turn the sound off and just watch them you know, with sound or without, but, uh, and I find Griff's technique to be particularly strong. I happen to like Intolerance more as a film than uh, Birth of a Nation, just because I think he's a better filmmaker on it. I think he's, he's, he's made some advancements and some leaps, and I like the boldness of his cross-cutting of the storytelling in that one, specifically. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to go back. We're, do you know what? We're, we're bringing you back for Intolerance because... I need, do you know, in light of this conversation, I need to go back to it. But my 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 experiences of intolerance have not been um, entirely positive. I think would probably be the word. I think the last time I watched Intolerance, I was trying to. I, I, the version I had of it was so that the music was absolutely atrocious. Oh, that's, I couldn't watch it uh, the last time I tried to watch the Image DVD. I did not like the music. And again, I spoiled myself. I rescored it to Queen. So maybe I need to send you a Queen version, <laughs> if you. If you like Queen, you'll love it. I mean, basically, you start with Night of the Opera, and then you go straight to Queen 2, and then you go to Sheer Heart Attack. So those you play those three in a row, you'll have a good experience. After that, you got to play Jukebox. But for those three albums, it's not bad. Well, I remember with fondness the Hollywood Saloon episode on fan edits, so I think we need a John ah, Jansen re-edit re of Intolerance with Queen. Now that I'm getting so many Queen instrumental tracks, that would be a fun way to do it too, without the lyrics. You could just score it with music, as well as some songs that had lyrics, because obviously sometimes the lyrics aren't going to fall, but sometimes when they do, it's like, ooh, you know, when you get those little moments where you just get a, an interesting echo that just happens to drop into place. For that serendipity but um yeah no it's i think you know I, i'm glad that you know at least the film is being restored 
on a Blu-ray level, it's not completely forgotten, Birth of a Nation. Um, like the, the sequel, I like to see what this fall of the nation was all about. It, I mean, reading the synopsis, it's kind of hilarious to think about where Thomas Dixon's mind was and how he was going to squeeze a little bit more out of it. I'm still astonished that I think they could have squeezed two movies out of the original. I think they should have split it in half. And, you know, but going out as the big three hour epic, I mean, that was it. That was that was what they set out to do. And, um, you know, that's that's their history. But I would recommend Nickelodeon as if, you know, as a little off film, the black and white version specifically. I can't believe that film ever came out in color. The first time I saw it in color, I just didn't like the movie. And it was just like, eh, well, but when I saw it again in black and white, it all played completely differently. I don't have to see Ryan O'Neill's blonde hair or, you know, his blue eyes or anything on that. When you strip all that color out, performances play differently to me. Everything plays differently in black and white. And I thought that was one of the key films that was a whole different movie in black and white than it was in its color incarnation. I mean, I remember the, the Darabont film, the monster film. What, what was it called? Um, oh, the Mist. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, the black and white version is far superior. Yes, so. I agree. I, I like that one a lot better. I And why why is it, though? I mean, this is the thing. I, I, I mean, I've gone back and watched The Mist. And I the first time I saw it, my first experience was in colour. And I watched it in black and white. I was like, this film is ridiculously better in black and white. It's creepier. I always felt like black and white helps performances, though, in some way. You're less distracted. And I don't know, I just think it's a real gift to actors when lit right and, and used right. But it never bothered me. I mean, even from growing up, I had a black and white TV growing up, so maybe that was why. I was just conditioned. You watch things in black and white, and then you watch some things in color. You know, some movies were in black and white, some were in color. You, you didn't question it. I didn't question why uh, Dr. Strangelove or Paz of Glory were in black and white. I just enjoyed them, you know? I, that, they were arti- I always thought they were artistic choices, more or less, you know, and then I learned later that they ne- weren't necessarily always that, but I don't know. It's And again, you know, commercials and music videos, we never had any trouble watching black and white or videos of that kind of nature, but audiences, boy, they just, sometimes they just stay away in droves. Like, I remember when the, uh, the Coen brothers, the man who wasn't there, yeah, I remember how beautiful that was, um, doing that film in black and white. Uh, you know what shot I take away every time I see it? It's when they do show that House of Representatives and it's an empty room and then they dissolve in everybody on the same shot without moving the camera. I always love that. It's a simple little technique kind of deal. I've seen Scorsese use it a bunch of times in movies and I've even used it a few times, you know. But I didn't know what its origin was until, you know, I kind of saw this. And I think even Malays had used that kind of thing. So again... What gets attributed to Griffith may be just, you know, other things that were around. But I guess when you make a movie that has it all packed in it, you kind of get, I guess you you get to carry the patent that comes along with it. Kind of like how Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and all the techniques and stuff that are in that movie get attributed to him. When, you know, it's fair to consider Greg Tolan and all the other, you know, sort of innovations that had come before them. But again, those that's another watermark movie. And I just think that's what's fascinating about these, because without these movies, movies that come after with aren't the same. You need these movies to push things along, even to shake things up a little bit um, and to inspire I mean, you, you got to think that there was a lot of people that were inspired by what they saw in these movies to go into these professions. So that's something, too. Oh, totally. I mean, I, it's, again, I, it's, it, 
as we kind of reiterated through things, the birth of cinema, of modern cinema, is in this film. I think it's all there, the techniques and storytelling and everything like that. And that's why I think I've enjoyed it more every time I've gone back to it since I've watched it, which is kind of strange given the fact that I'm kind of a 36-year-old liberal apologist. Yeah, I don't have to agree with it to appreciate it, you know, that kind of thing. It's the same thing. I do this in music all the time. It's like there there can be an album i don't like but i can appreciate it and say look it's good but it's just i don't i'm not into it but i can recognize the artistic value in something of the accomplishment the skill that maybe went into it sometimes you know it's unfortunate that the at the message at the end of all that skill is what it is but again i don't know i don't i can look at birth of a nation and again there's so much in it that i don't just have to peg it to the one ugly aspect of it and then just stamp it with that to where you can't talk about anything else. I think that that does the film a little bit of a disservice. Um, and, and again, you know, uh, I think when audiences, if they do see it, they will see two different films from the first half to the second half. Um, Absolutely. There's, an, there's no denying the effectiveness of that first half, nor the offensive racism in the second half. But I think the debate about this film will, it will continue it will never end the the form versus content discussion and the film for me is like it's so many things it's naive and simplistic in its historical portrayal and it's astonishing in just its view of history and the glorification of kkk but it's also tremendously significant and powerful piece of uh, art that just has extraordinary effects and brilliantly filmed sequences and works as a example of movie propaganda, really. So I think it's a really fascinating film that I've come to appreciate more in my later years and in returning to it. So it will be interesting, like returning to intolerance and perhaps getting rid of the music there as well. Yeah. In a hundred years, that's what fascinates me. That, you know, it was made 101 years ago. I mean, it's really, it's a young industry, you know, a young art form when you consider other from painting and writing and plays and that kind of thing. And I don't know. I mean, we've learned a lot from Griffith, but maybe we haven't learned that much either at the same time, you know. No, totally. I mean, it's um, it's, it's interesting. I, I think um, you know, cinema as well. It's an interesting perspective as well, because at the moment we, we've got this whole virtual reality is going to be the next thing. Um, that we're heading towards and it was um i went to a a exhibition the other day and we were looking at the various technologies that are coming out and someone i went with we, we were looking at these kind of virtual reality goggles and they said oh i can't really see this being something which um we're going to watch films on and i completely disagreed with them and i was like no no this someone's going to make a film uh, you know, this, this this is going to be the next thing of which people like filmmakers go down um, the path off and they were like yeah but you, you can't you can't edit in it you can't it's a completely different format and the films that we were watching were kind of more kind of documentary based but I, th- I thought and, and going back and watching all these old silent movies and stuff I thought that, that, that this we're at the cusp of something again someone's going to make a film in virtual reality a fiction film with a 360 degree environment that's going to kick open the doors to another kind of way of presenting stories and i thought it, it's going to happen and in a way with birth of the nation is you get you get that moment 
in the history of film where you go from simple one readers you, you go from you tell a complex story and you kind of kick open the doors and i hope it happens again with virtual reality i, I think it will I, I i personally believe there's a massive future in it more so than something like 3d no i, I mean think of like the the opening sequence of saving private ryan in virtual reality i mean yeah. people will be gobsmacked if they experience that yeah no totally and it, but i, I, I I mean, God, Mad Max Fury Road in surround like that would just <laughs> yeah. be breathtaking just to be be put in the middle of that. Here's something to think about. Okay, we're 100 years, 101 years from, from Birth of a Nation, but from the Nickelodeon stage, are we right back in the Nickelodeon stage today in terms of where we've regressed in our storytelling and our spectacle and what people want from movies? Do they go to the movies like they went to the Nickelodeons where there was just a new one and it was just a short little thing, it was a gag or just a, something to give them a, a jolt, a spectacle, but it wasn't, they didn't take it seriously, it wasn't great art form, it was just a novelty is how they were treated. Mm. But when Birth of a Nation comes along and it takes you know the, the drama of theater and the techniques of that, suddenly it, it challenges people to say, well, maybe film could be the next art form and grow out of its Nickelodeon sort of adolescence uh, where it's just about the gag or the spectacle or the moment and actually be a storytelling device the same way to translate emotions and ideas the same way theater does. And that is what happened. I mean, films became the, the sort of delivery mechanism for that. And we saw that when you look at the, how they evolved and the way film and storytelling and the way that they wanted to choose that medium even preferring that over the theater in terms of the popular culture, enjoying movies, going to movies more than theater and so forth. But the types of movies that they were getting, the nutrition, the drama behind them are not the same necessarily, you know, that they're getting today. I think that the emphasis seems to me today is we've regressed and movies have sort of returned to their Nickelodeon sort of adolescence in many ways and just sort of being these big spectacle things and they're just sort of every week there's six new ones seven new ones right you know and you mm -hmm. know if you don't like this one the next one will kind of come along and will thrill you in this particular way but uh, I don't know if it's really necessarily advancing the dramatic aspects to where we feel you know films are, are as important in the same way they were and maybe some of these other things that we're talking about will be steps in those directions that's what's interesting guys I don't know I mean uh, I'll try them out like everything else. I mean, I'm pretty simple. I don't, I don't ever necessarily need all these other gimmicks. If you tell me a good story, I get involved in it. I'm locked in. That's it. You know, I mean, I, you can own me within 30 seconds of your movie if you do it right. You know, and I'll and I won't look away, and I'll be locked in, and you'll have me, and I won't need 3D glasses or really anything special to to change that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Have either of you seen the film Tangerine? I have not seen it yet. Right, okay, T Tangerine is a brilliant example of, basically, the, 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 they actually tried to hide it from people at the time. It, Tangerine was filmed on iPhones. It was filmed on two iPhone 5Ss, and they stuck an anamorphic lens over the, 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 the it's like an adapter. It cost like $200, I think they are. They stuck those over the, over the things, and they, and they made this film. And what struck me about when I was watching Tangerine was I knew going into the film that it was shot on iPhone. And within 15 seconds of watching that film, I couldn't have given a toss what it was filmed on because the story grabbed me immediately. And it didn't necessarily tell the most original of tales, 
But what it showed to me was if you, it doesn't matter, you don't need Dolby Atmos or any kind of 3D effect. If the story is enough to get you from the off, that's all you need. And it, it reminded me when, when, when I was watching, I just thought, God, this is such brilliant filmmaking because it's just letting this little story tell itself. And I think the where we are at the moment, I'm going to talk about kind of like virtual reality. If the stories are there, if it's not just a gimmick, if, if, if someone can invent a way of doing it that draws you in from the off, you won't care. You'll just be in there. You'll be bought into it and you'll be there and you'll, you'll go along with the story. I sort of get the impression at the moment we're in kind of the age of where I feel like lots of the technological advancements that are happening at the moment are about putting hardware and products into people's houses. More, that's the most important thing it seems, as opposed to the kind of the actual kind of storytelling. And I, I, I would like to think, without being pessimistic, that there will be kind of a backlash against this, where people will go back to basics in a way, and go back to the origins of telling good stories. Because they are out there. You have to you have to dig a little deeper to find them. But I'm hoping that's the direction that we go in. Yeah, because even audiences' delivery of movies. I mean, today, some audiences want to watch it on their iPhone. That's how they're going to watch a movie. And it's like, if I'm a filmmaker, my choice is rather than not watch my movie or watch it on whatever delivery system they want. You know, my, my thinking is as well, I should probably do a headphone mix for the film. So there's at least a good sound mix for that particular version of the movie. So they get at least the best audio, audio experience if they're watching it on a tiny screen like that. That's where my thinking goes is you sort of have to adapt to the delivery system of what the audience wants at the same time. And, you know, there's going to be always the showman. You're going to have the Camerons out there that are going to want to do the next thing, you know, they want to get people back out in that sort of roadshow spirit of going out to the theaters. And, and, and that's terrific. And I mean, when I go back and I think of Avatar, I mean, there's no way Cameron could have done a more complicated story than that. It would have flopped. He had to make that story simple. He had to make a film to where he could take that film to a tribe of Amazonians out there who had never even seen a movie before. He could show them Avatar and they can follow it. They, they, the, the mechanics of it, they can follow it like a silent film, even if they don't understand the dialogue or whatnot, because the basic tenets of Avatar are as old as storytelling themselves, and they work, and they work, and they work. Um, and so, you know, on a big movie like that, you kind of see how the technology sort of is being used sometimes to service what can also be a very simple story. Um, but that's making a film that plays around the world, you know. Uh, to people. If you made the 2001 version of Avatar, I don't think it would have done too well, you know. I don't think that kind of cerebral sci-fi would have really taken off, but uh, what it means for the Avatar sequels, I don't know. But I do look at, at Cameron as one of our premier showmen of, of someone that will take advantage of giving you a reason to come out and go to the cinema. And uh, so I look forward to seeing what he does. Right. John, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about Birth of a Nation with you. So thank you for having me. Um, where can we find most? Well, where can we find more of? Uh, where, where can we find you online as well? John? Um, you could find me at www.greenmillfilmworks.com and www.hollywoodgauntlet.com. Greenmill Filmworks for the filmmaking, Hollywood Gauntlet for the podcasting. Great. 
And Tom, whereabouts can we find you? You can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can email me 24framescast at gmail.com. And you can um, befriend me on Facebook. I'm the miserable person standing by the Berlin Wall, uh, Tom Jennings. Good stuff. And you can find us at moccast.blogspot.com or on Criterioncast as well. And you can also find us on iTunes if you haven't already subscribed to us there. And please leave a written review if you can. Uh, And also just search for us on Facebook and Twitter and you will probably be the first to pop up there. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. We need to do a um, like yeah, just do a, a a talk episode. Get a few topics down. Oh, I'd be fine. Just you know, like what we were doing earlier, just on whatever the the state of yeah, things yeah. are. It's uh, no, it's definitely. Fa- I mean, uh, you guys still enjoying podcasting and everything? Oh, definitely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But we we've had had a bit of a break uh, recently, two months or so. Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, ups and downs, I think. I, I at mm. least um, uh, notice my own motivation is it's um, very contingent upon my workload. <laughs> I'm the same way. And I find it, it's hard now to put four people together in a room. Like so many yeah. times two yeah. of us can do it, but one can't or the other one. And it's like, well, I'd always wait. It's like, well, let's just wait a week where we can all be there. It'd be better, mm-hmm. better for the show. And then two months yeah. goes by, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah. Anyway, no, I'm just still surprised that, you know, there's still an audience out there. I'm, I'm happy that people still, like, enjoy listening to them and, and so forth, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, No, totally. I mean, it goes back to being like, you know, let's, let's just be sycophantic of it. I think the Hollywood Saloon was kind of, it raised the bar, didn't it? Let's be brutally honest. We got in at a good time. time. We were like the first class yeah. of podcasts and because... Yeah you know for for the benefit or whatever because it was so stubborn and say no we're going to do a two-hour show no we're going to do a three-hour show we just didn't care you know <laughs> fuck what everyone else is doing kind of attitude in the nicest possible way of course mm. yeah, yeah. but it's like i always just felt like you got free real estate here let's use it you know i hate yeah. when cisco and Niebert have to stop talking about a movie after five minutes you know If they would have had an hour long per movie, that would have been a really interesting program. They could have really gotten into some interesting things the way their writing did in their articles and so forth. But uh, in any case, yeah, no, it's just there's so many film podcasts out there now. It's just kind of interesting to see how many it spawned and how much is out there. For sure. Oh no! I my, my my always thing on the other on the twenty four frames cast. I'm always so happy when I, I and I always go back to it. I had an email once from someone saying I'm unsubscribing on the basis you talk about films I've never heard of, <laughs> and I was like, thank you so much. That is like literally, that's the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. And I, I emailed this guy back and he was just like, yeah, but you know, I've never heard of Colossus the Forbin Project. I was like, go and watch mm-hmm. it then. No, totally. It's <laughs> and that's my attitude. Is I don't. <laughs> That's why I don't want to listen to necessarily a podcast about a movie that I already like and love. I already kind of know about it. You're not going to convince me to watch it. I've already seen it, you know? I mean, that kind of thing. I'd rather learn about something I don't know. Turn me on to something. You know, expand yeah, totally. my, my mind and, and culture. I mean, there's nothing better to get than someone recommends a movie for you and you can discover it. Well, there is one thing better. Yeah. When someone recommends a movie for it and you're like, oh, I didn't want to see that. Oh, I'm going to hate that. That's going to be a piece of shit. And then it blows you away. 
that's the thing I really like. Okay. You know, when you're when you're just <laughs> completely wrong. You know, when you just you're so yeah. full of yourself and yet you're wrong, and that's great too. It's a, I think it's a it's a good splash of water in the face every now and then. Yeah. But uh, totally. But yeah. What's going on with the the Hollywood saloon? I oh Hollywood gauntlet. Sorry. Gauntlet. Say that again. Say that again. Interesting <laughs> about the Hollywood saloon. I think we ended it right when it would have gotten interesting because I don't think Andy and I have agreed on a film since. Like he loved Man of Steel, <laughs> I hated Man of Steel. He, you know, he liked Spectre, I hated Spectre. He likes Force Awakens, I didn't like it. He liked Batman, Superman, <laughs> I hated it. You know, I think now we could probably have some interesting conversations since we don't always agree so much on yeah. on that kind of thing. Because you know, I, that's why I like multiple voices in the Gauntlet. I I hope somebody in there disagree so we can get their opinion in it's just as valid and you know it's it's not a contest you know it's up for you the listener to make up your own mind at the end of the day but i will tell you something that was kind of cool when that um did you guys see the sega video that when it leaked or when i dropped it yes i saw it. okay cool i probably got one of my best reviews on that one when somebody says it was a a surprisingly good watch (laughs) and i thought that's probably that's four stars today a surprisingly yeah. good watch in today's cynical world of of uh, people that won't watch more than a minute. If they finished it, I think that's probably if they could watch twenty eight minutes of a, of content today, that's something to be sure. But uh, <laughs> that was a crazy thing the way that thing sort of blew up so fast. Yeah. But uh, do you know where anyone like linking to? Oh it yeah, I mean that's that's where it spread like wildfire. There was like at least twenty web pages that did a. A page on it you know it's like here's this and, and link to it that way um, okay and then uh, one of them contacted me and I did an interview with them just answered a few questions and they posted that um, but uh, generally yeah it also lets some nice feedback for the gauntlet and some other stuff so that's always good when uh, yeah. some new people get exposed to it but I was just surprised that it was so well received it's like I've buried that piece just because I kind of forgot about it. You know, it's like, yeah, I did that then and, you know, didn't think about it. But, well, you know, it's not, It's kind of nice to have that kind of feedback 20 years later to think, well, okay, maybe it did turn out okay. <laughs> you never really know. You make the stuff, you know, and you put it out there and you hope it, it's well received, you know. But, uh, I mean, the thing on for me, the historical thing, is just because of the equipment I was using, being having to do with uh, linear tape-to-tape editing equipment. So in terms of a discussion, it's interesting in terms of editing as I had these, you know, 10, 8 millimeter tapes and I was just, you know, having to rewind, fast forward. Oh, there's that shot set in and out points and, you know, build it up shot mm. by shot like that. But uh, I think I could have done it a lot easier with digital editing for sure. But, you know, you use the tools you have. To me, because it wasn't scissors and splice tape, I love tape to tape editing. Are you kidding? That thing was a dream. <laughs> not to have to use full coat to sync up with oh what a nightmare but uh in any case no it's cool did you guys enjoy it i mean was it an interesting peek into sega did you see it tom um what's that let's say uh sega. johnny sent sent us a sega film um a link to his vimeo no what was that sorry it was the... a training film i did for sega when i worked for him back in the mid 90s oh no 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 i've not yeah, seen yeah, this no yeah so i was just i was where, just kind of curious from the outside what is it is it I had no, no idea no. there'd be uh, where, so many where? people interested in it, but that's just my own naivete because I work for the company. So, you know, I didn't... Where, 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 whereabouts is it? Um, just do a search on Google for this is Sega Test. 
John Jansen Vimeo, and it's on there. Right. Oh, I like. I see it. Yeah. But yeah, uh. But yeah, you know, it was just it was just kind of fun. Yeah. No, no, no. I I checked that right out. Actually. <laughs> Sega. <laughs> and yes, that is the United Artists opening theme that I stole for the very opening. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's all kinds of like little in jokes in it that were just there to entertain myself while you know we were making it. But uh, I know I just I'd been thinking about doing an updated documentary because I'm sitting on all of this archive footage that I shot the seven years I was at Sega from about '91 to '97, and I was thinking it might be interesting to get all these people I interviewed 20 years ago do new interviews, tell the story of what it was like in customer service and test, and then cross cut them with their old interviews from 20 years ago and the old footage I shot of what the inside of the buildings and cubes and and all that looked like. But I wasn't sure hmm. if there'd be an audience for that. You know, it'd be like, eh, I don't know. But after this, it was like, yeah, there might be. People, there's enough people out there that are really into that period of video games, surprisingly enough. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, 100, is that 145,000? It's incredible. Ah. Jesus I, Christ. I know. It, it, it shot up. It, it became very popular. I was, And most people, I mean, now, out of that 145,000, I'd have to take a look at how many actually watched the whole thing. You know, because yeah, yeah. it was like over 500,000 hits, which means whenever somebody hit a web page it was on, they would I would get a like a little tick or something. And then when someone hit play, that's another one. And if they watch it to the end, that's another one kind of deal. You see, this is giving me an idea. I've got to make a uh, a training video at the moment, but we're thinking of doing like a Sergei, Sergei Einstein. Oh, OK, nice. So that, but actually filming on things, and this has already given me some ideas. Actually, <laughs> I'm going to get Rob. This is going to rob some. Uh, we actually, I mean, we yeah. were going to go full on Spinal Tap, and I was playing the director, and we were going to shoot all these scenes with me, you know, and that kind of stuff. But it all, it just, it never played, so I ended up cutting it all out, and just, you know, it just sort of, it was like one of those things where we had a lot of ideas, but at the end of the day, we just had to come up with something. So. But uh, yeah, definitely. I, mean, I yeah, guess I'm it's in, well, it's, it's only interesting now because of the distance of, of time, I guess, and it's just sort of a relic. But anyway, yeah, no, no, I'm already, I'm already loving this <laughs> as well. <laughs> you guys played video games well, you, back then? Did you? I mean, that kind of thing? No, no, I wasn't so much. I've only got into video games in like the past ten years. I wasn't so much in the nineties. Yeah. I I played like, the uh, Nintendo uh, okay. and Super Nintendo. And gotcha. So uh, Sega, I think, was a little before. Before I was allowed to play video games, at least it was it was really expensive in Britain. The Master as well. System, mm -hmm. it was yeah, Mega Drive and yeah, all that. It was proper expensive. It was yeah, no doubt, no doubt. 